Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 152 of the Intercooler Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Um, so it's Italian week on the Intercooler Podcast this week, specifically fast Italian cars. We're talking Lamborghinis and Ferraris. Um, before that, though, I just want to introduce our newest writer, newest addition to our writing lineup. Um, he's a superstar in our world. Um, delighted to have him with us. So enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Before we get stuck into the Italian stuff this week, Andrew, we just need to talk about our latest writer, our new contributor to the Intercooler yeah. app and website, um, Steve Sutcliffe. Now, that name is going to yes. resonate with, I would say, just about everyone listening, um, because he's been around for 30 years. He's one of the most highly regarded road testers, isn't he? Probably in the world. Certainly in yeah, the world, definitely. actually. Um, definitely. So he's a brilliant addition to our lineup. Yeah. Yeah, um, I couldn't be more chuffed to have him on board. He's he's a fabulous driver. I think everybody knows that. Yeah. Uh, he's got amazing car control. I mean, he once he once lapped a Formula One car around Silverstone within like a few tenths of whoever the test driver was. Yeah, and he literally just got in the thing and did it. Yeah, um, yeah. So so yeah, which is one thing. So he's an amazing driver, but he's also got a he's also got a fantastically sort of healthy cynicism about the way he looks at stuff which i think is is rare and possibly becoming increasingly rare in this business he's just not the sort of person who's going to be bowled over by a badge or a you know a friendly pr person or you know or anything else um, no and I, and, and I think that we can you know and, and and he's also what he's absolutely not he's just not going to go with popular opinion i mean i think often cars get good rides because uh you know and a lot of opinion comes out from the initial press launch which goes oh this is terrific you know press launch which inevitably held in absolutely optimal conditions for that car and then you kind of create a head of steam and a bit of a bandwagon and and and, and it's quite difficult to put your hand up and go uh actually no steve will without thinking about it um and as, as his first story for us this week um shows so splendidly well yeah, we'll come on to that in a moment. But I, I just want to draw some attention to his um, writer bio on the website. 
Um, if you want to know a little bit more about Steve Sutcliffe, just go and visit his page on the website under the writer tab, um, because that will, in just a few hundred words, that will give you a very clear idea of how credible this guy is, as if you don't know already. But yeah, you're right. He um, he did lap. Uh, it was a then current Honda Formula One car around the Silverstone National Circuit within half a second of James Rossiter, who was the factory test driver. Um, so think about that. That is fairly extraordinary. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So the bloke can drive. I mean, that's obvious. He's won plenty of races. He was part of the TVR Tuscan Challenge, wasn't he? Which was a fairly hairy-chested series. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's a fantastic driver, but he's he's driven every significant car, um, and he's got a wealth of experience that's really going to bring um, his TI stories to light. And the first one that he's written, which went live this morning. Um, so if you want to go and see what Steve is all about... If, if you're listening to this on Monday, that is. Yeah, if you're listening to this on Monday, yeah. Um, it went live this morning, and it's a new series that he's going to be writing for us called Overrated, where he just takes a pop at the cars that he considers to be overrated, cars that he thinks had an easier time in the press um, than they deserved. And his first one is the Toyota GR Yaris. Um, now, I... I, I'm not. Do I consider it that car overrated? I don't know. Maybe the, I, I like the Yaris, the GR Yaris. I don't love it, um, but Steve goes into real detail, real ex, really explaining why he thinks yeah. that car misses the mark. Now, the point about this series is that there aren't too many journalists who could pull off a series called Overrated, um, taking a shot at cars that they consider to be overrated, because you need a certain level of credibility to pull it off, don't you? And the point is... And you, need, and you need to have driven not only whatever your target car is, uh, you need to have driven everything else that you know, it can be compared to. Otherwise, how do you know? Yeah. What's your point of reference? What's the context? Yeah. So, and Steve has all that. So go and check it out now. Now, <laughs> whenever you do um, something like this, there will always be people who come out of the woodwork and just go, ooh, clickbait. And actually, that's just total nonsense. It's utter rubbish. It's also because quite the, the inference there is that there is no room on our platform or any other to be critical of cars, you know. And it's also just one guy's point of view. And isn't that yeah, interesting? I mean, isn't that interesting to get somebody else's slightly different point of view on a car? I think it is. Yeah, I mean, Steve submitted a list of cars for this story. There's one car on that I can't believe he's having a go yeah. at. Um. And I said, and, and when he suggested, I just said, absolutely. I just want to read it. Yeah. I want to read why he thinks this car, which hasn't come up yet, um, and I'm not going to say what it is, but it is one of the icons. Mm. But maybe it's the um, icon. Maybe. Um, and I, I just really, really, really want to hear what he has to say about it. Um, and you know, and there aren't many people, as you say, who are qualified in the way that he is to to say. It. I mean, you know, he goes. I mean, well, he and I go way back. I mean, we. Um, Joined Autocar at, I think I got there slightly before him, because I'm a little bit older than him, but not much. Um, and we basically ran the road test department of Autocar all the way through the early 1990s, up to the mid-1990s, actually. So all those, you know, amazing cars, like, you know, extra 220s and McLaren F1s and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, our job was to produce, not just to go and drive them, but to produce definitive road tests on them. So there we were. Um, 
you know, with the timing gear at the test tracks, getting not just our subjective impressions, but also the objective data, which, you know, allowed us to come to, you know, hopefully reasonably definitive conclusions about these sorts of cars. And Steve was there doing all of that. And then we did some stupid stuff together. We did some really, really stupid stuff together. And maybe we'll talk about it uh, at another time. But, you know, just such good fun. And then he went off... Um, and ended up at Evo, where he has been um, for years, and you know, enhancing and enriching everything they've done. Um, and you know, there just aren't very many people out there whose whose view on a car I would trust or judge. You know, I would trust better than Steve's. Yeah, yeah. And if you find this overrated series triggering because perhaps you own one of the cars he's having a pop out, just take a moment, just reflect, and think. Well, actually, this guy they don't become they don't get more credible than him. And if he no. if he if he honestly holds this point of view, then. You kind of just have to take it on the chin and go, okay, well, I disagree with him. Um, yeah. But... I mean, I, I, I think I'm with you on the Yaris. When I, when I drove it, I thought, this is a terrific car. I thought it's a really good car. But I do remember driving it and thinking to myself how much more fun, even than it is, that it could be if they just set it up in a slightly different way. Um, so I don't... Do I think it's overrated? Possibly a bit, but Steve, Steve feels strongly about it, and so you know, it's just his view. And the point is, you know, you don't have to agree with it, but I think you do have to accept that a he's entitled to it, and b that the view has credibility. It's an opinion. It's no, it's no right or no. wrong in any of these pieces. But you know, you can't just say, oh, you know, he's just having a go because he's, he can. He's having a go because that's what he feels, and 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 also in this. In this age where, you know, one of the reasons that we started TI or DN as it was, that is that, you know, we have, we've always held the view that cars get um, too easy a ride in the press. And I think if you look at our verdicts and particularly our ratings uh, on cars, I think that we, I hope that we have a reputation for being tough on cars, as we should be, as journalists should be. Um, and you know, not gratuitous or, you know, being different for the sake of being different and, you know, thinking, oh, well, they all said it's good, so therefore we're going to say it's bad. We just come to our own honestly arrived at opinions about cars. Um, and we don't, I think, you know, we, 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 we just don't give them the easy ride that seems to happen a bit too often these days. Anyway, and then there's no one better to, to do that for us than Steve. No, absolutely right. So his first piece is live now. Um, go and check it out. There'll be many, many more brilliant stories from Steve to come. So delighted to have him on board. Okay, let's get on with the Italian theme this week. It's actually Italian yeah. fast cars, isn't it? Um, yeah. Some mega stuff in here. So I want to start with um, our new segment called What Goes Up, where it's our opportunity to pull out a particular model um, and just discuss it in some detail um, and maybe have a think about what its place in the market is at the moment, um, what demand might be like in the years to come. Um, and this is a good example. Um, so you've been driving a Lamborghini Countach and you've written yeah. actually a wonderful story um, about you. it. It's live on the Apple website now and you can see Andy Morgan's superb images as well. Um, but we, we went over to Girardo & Co in Oxfordshire, didn't we, um, to drive a we couple did. of cars. The one you were focusing on was the Countach. Um, just fill us in a little bit, because you'd had a bad experience with the Countach in the past, and you, you wanted to put that right and see if actually that was a bad example or if the Countach really was a disappointing thing. 
Yeah, I don't want to give the game away too much because, well, to be honest with you, I want people to go onto the onto the website and and, and read the story. But yes, I'd had. I mean, it must have been about a dozen years ago. We had. Um, I was doing something for Autocar where we had a lot of cars, a lot of very fast cars on a runway. Uh, I think we went there. We had well, we, yeah, it was one. I think it was Brontingthorpe, so we had the whole circuit as well. Um, and for some reason, they decided they wanted to get a few of the old, you know, um, the old masters along. Uh, and one of these things was a Countach. It was a, an LP5000S, just like the one that I drove last week. Um, and, you know, as, as a kid, I'd had these things. You know, they were the things that were on my bedroom wall. Countaches everywhere. Couldn't, you know, couldn't move for Countaches. Cut out of every car magazine I could find. And so I was just fizzing when I realised I'd get to have a go in this thing. And I did. And I just, I just wished I'd never sat in it. It was <laughs> rubbish. It was, it was slow. It scared me. It was so badly. But there was nothing about this car that I liked, really. It just struck me as, well, talk about overrated. It struck me as being the most overrated car I'd ever driven. Um, and I've been fairly consistently rude about Countach's ever since. But at the same time, always accepting that I'd only driven one of them. And because I just couldn't believe it was meant to be that bad, um, always just putting the proviso in that, you know, maybe I drove a bad one. But it's just kind of, you know niggled away at me ever since um and then suddenly our, our chums uh, alex eastop at, at gerardo rang up and said we've got one um seems nice it's only just come and don't really know much about it but if you want to come and have a go um so i did you and i went over you drove another lovely italian car i drove the countach and it was a a revelatory experience whether the, the, what, what it revealed is that they really are absolutely as rubbish as I always thought they were, or the car I drove, first of all, was by no means representative of it, and actually the truth is something different. You'll have to go and um, read the story on the website to find out. But I'm very glad I did it, because now I know. Yeah. Now I know whether Countaches are good, bad, or indifferent. I absolutely, or, you know, LP5000S, certainly. Uh, if anybody wants to let me drive their, their QV or their Pedascopio, um, I'd be more than delighted. But... Um, it was a very interesting thing to go and do. Yeah, so, well, thanks, Gerardo and Co. And we're going to be doing more with those guys. Um, we are. Because they, they have in stock some extraordinary cars, cars that we maybe wouldn't get a chance to drive um, were it not for them and their ilk. So, I mean, working with these very high-end dealerships is, is so important to a title like us because it's access to the cars that people really want to read about. Um, and I think increasingly... Our audience, and I, I suspect probably all magazine audiences, are more interested in slightly older cars than they are brand new cars. Um, I think that's a fairly clear trend. And so having relationships like this one, um, it means that we get to bring you the cars that you want to read about. So it's so important to us, and we're going to be doing much, much more. Um, They're also just rabid enthusiasts. They're like us. Yeah. Oh. Um, and, 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 and that's the kind of you know, the thing that we, we, I think we look for more than anything else. Um, because there, you know, there are no shortage of dealerships out there where you know which are stacked to the walls with nice cars. Um, but you know, the approach to these guys are—you know—they ring you up and they go, "We've got this thing. Come on, have a go." Um, and it's just such—you go in there and you just feel that you're among kindred spirits. You don't sort of feel—I mean, of course, they're business and they've—you know—they're they're there to make money, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But you go in there and you just feel that you're among people who think the same way that you do, and it's great. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, Andrew's teased you all with his. Um, by not giving away any driving impressions of the car. I'm going to give you some of mine, only because I, I drove it maybe three or four miles. Um, 
not far. It's the only one I've ever driven. Um, but what leapt out at me was, first of all, when you're up and running, how light the steering was and how actually easy it is just to operate this thing. Um, and it felt quick without being sort of urgent and forcefully accelerative. Um, a sense of occasion beyond belief. But the thing that really stuck out, I just, I don't know how now, or even back in the 70s or 80s when these things were new, how do you drive them fast? I, I just can't get my head around how you take one by the scruff and fling it down a road. Maybe you just couldn't. Maybe you had to more stroke it along, use the power, carry speed. I just, I just couldn't ever imagine getting right on top of it and feeling like I was it. And, and why is that? Are you worried about what it might do? Um, I think it's... I'm sure that's a part of it, but I just, I feel like I'm almost at my limit just operating it. Yeah. And it's, it might just be unfamiliarity, and you know, particularly if, think, if you've only driven it three think, miles. Well, I think there are two things. I think partly it possibly is with those sorts of cars. Um, but you know, it comes from a slightly strange sort of transition era. By that I mean, if you drove a, an E-Type from the 60s, I guarantee you wouldn't worry about th- throwing that around because it's very narrow, it's got no grip. Um, you know, it's engines at one end, it's driven wheels at the other, and they just slide around and they're, you know, it's like driving a 60s Alpha. It's just fall off log, easy thing to do. And if you drove a sort of modern supercar, well, you know, if you were in the right environment on the right track, you wouldn't think twice about turning all the tricks off and doing that. Countach is kind of in between because it's, it's mid-engined and it's wide and you can't really see out of it very well. But it's also got these enormous tyres on it. It's got a three, four, five section, 15 inch rim on the back. Um, and you sort of look at those and you think, blimey, did they do that because they like, they think it looks cool? Or did they do that because they really don't want this thing oversteering? Um, and I suspect a bit of, a, 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 I suspect there's a bit of both in it. Um, but yeah, I think you would have to be really quite brave, you know, unless you're just sort of doing it in a first gear hairpin, to really want to break loose in one of those. I think, I think they are the sorts of cars and they come from a kind of era where, you know, very fat, low profile tires were just coming in. I mean, the Countach, I think, was the first car to wear a Pirelli P7, which was the first properly low-profile um, tyre. And, you know, so suddenly they got a whole load of grip, often cars which weren't designed when they were new. I mean, the Countach wasn't designed when, you know, when the Countach, you know, the very, very early Countaches came on, what did it be, like a 205 section tyre, something like that at the back? So they weren't designed for the tyres that they end, ended up on. And I think, you're, I think you're right. I think, you know, I think you would need to be brave um before hoofing one of those around but i also think if you'd you know if you were as old as me and therefore you're kind of growing up driving those sorts of things i think you would find and you may come to find once you get a bit more used to them that they're not as intimidating as they initially present i'm sure yeah that's it it's intimidating and i'm sure that's an impression based on reputation based on the way it looks based on the way it feels initially um yeah i understand that can I, can, I, can I say one more thing about it, which is it's not really giving away what I thought, but I just find it quite interesting that um, compare Ferrari and Lamborghini 12-cylinder engines. You know, so they were both making, you know, Ferrari in the Boxer and Lamborghini in the Countach, they were both making 12-cylinder engines. Now, the Ferrari engine was a flat 12, but it wasn't a Boxer, and it's actually based on the V12, which was in the Daytona, 
whereas the Lamborghini engine was uh, started life well with, with the birth of Lamborghini with the 350 GT, but it was particularly in the Mura, which was the Daytona drive. So they're similar engines from similar eras of similar sizes and similar outputs. And yet they feel so different. The Ferrari engine, it's much more mellifluous and symphonic and and it sort of, you know, it, it revs and it's, uh, and it's beautiful. It's all in the sort of upper reaches. Because the Lamborghini growls at you. It just really growls. And I don't know which is... And if you could, have one, if you could choose one to have played at your funeral, uh, I don't know which I... I genuinely don't know which I go for. Because I think the Lamborghini is the more exciting sound. But I think the Ferraris is the more emotional sound. Um, and I, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm, this is a massive sort of sidestep digress, but if we're talking Italian supercars, I don't think it's irrelevant. Uh, I just find it really interesting that two engines that basically came out for the same sort of cars at the same sort of time by the same sort of people could be so different. Yeah, yeah, it's not like a, a V12 of a certain capacity of natural aspiration is a V12 of a certain capacity of natural aspiration. There can be a huge spread between huge, yeah. two seemingly very similar engines. It's funny, isn't it? What is that about? It must be firing order, it must be bore stroke must be exhaust tuning all sorts I don't I, I, I mean maybe somebody who knows more about these things than I um, <clears throat> I don't know whether they even tuned cars for sound back then they probably didn't they probably just made their engine stuck some pipes on it and you got what you got where you go yeah yeah but it, 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 it's just I'd like to think that there's some kind of sort of conceptual philosophical emotional difference in approach between them uh, it probably isn't they probably just built the engines they wanted to build and that's how they sound but, yeah and it turns out that way i'm sure that's probably yeah. true and it's not even as if you know one only revs to six thousand and the other goes so they, they both rev to you know seven and a bit thousand revs so it's not even as if you know they've been tuned to do different things i'm sure this is a one of those how long is a piece of string questions but what's a kuntash worth What's a 5000S worth? Do you have any, any idea? It's a fair amount, no, isn't it? I don't. I don't. It's, uh, I, I, I think so much of these things just depends on uh, history and condition. I mean, 5000S <coughs> is the rarest. Of the, you know, they made Countach's in uh, three engine sizes. There's the 4-litre, which was in the LP400, and the LP400S, which was the first one to get the wheel arch extensions and the big wheels and all that sort of stuff. And then there was the LP5000S, which was actually a bit of a stopgap car, <coughs> before they produced the ultimate one, which was the Quattro Valvole, which is a 5.2-litre V12. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, uh, the LP5000S was only in production for about three years in the 1980s, and they only made 321 of them. So I think a lot of, <coughs> a lot of it depends on you know, what particular model it is, what its particular history is, um, and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, From what I've seen... I've just had a look at a few, and there, clearly there aren't many on um, up for sale at any one time. But it's looking like 300 and something to half a million quid. I'm sure you can spend a lot more if you want to. Um, so phew, the prices are strong for those, aren't they? I suspect they weren't up there several years ago. Um, no, but yeah, if you think about it, they made fewer than 2,000 cars in from 1974 to, gosh, probably 1989, 1990. So it's 2,000 cars, let's call it 16 years. So well, my maths isn't very good, but that's, what's that, a car a fortnight, something like that? It's, it's nothing. Yeah, it's and really how, not many are, how many of those, how many of those, we probably all see the Wolf or Wall Street and you know, know what happens to Countach's when they're not properly looked after. Um, how many of those are still around? And how many of those are still nice? 
I think, I mean, the thing about Lamborghinis is they, they still have this problem because there's no racing heritage. They just don't have the pedigree. And yet, if you look at the Countach, which was the last car to be developed under Ferruccio Lamborghini, um, you know, its design was led by Giampaolo Dallara. It was engineered by Paolo Stanzani. It was styled by Marcello Gandini. That's the super I mean, group, isn't it? It's the super group. I mean, you couldn't have a greater bunch of people. And, 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 it was de- and, and it was signed off by Bob Wallace. I mean, you couldn't have a greater bunch of people developing. I mean, that's why it kind of did what it did. It wasn't because it looked cool, which it did. It was because the most amazing people, you know, f- forget the fact that they've never won a Grand Prix or, you know, Le Mans or anything else like that. Just look at the people who made the car. And that's why it got the reputation it got. Um, it's absolutely, it's a super group. And that's why you must have been so disappointed with your first Countach experience oh, and why you wanted that, to revisit yeah. it. And Ooh. yeah, there you go, the story's up there. What Goes Up is sponsored this week by car finance specialist JBR Capital. We've been working with JBR Capital for a while now and it's been a brilliant partnership for us. High-end car finance is all the company does, meaning it understands the car market and car buyers better than most. So before you buy your next sports car, supercar, classic car, luxury car, even a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Visit jbrcapital.com or click the link in description. And this bit is important. Tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. So let's move across northern Italy um, a little bit. We're going from Lamborghini to Ferrari. Um, Also a very different type of car, still an NAV12, but in the front of the Puro Sangue the the not suv um you were in italy a few weeks ago to drive that car um your full review is on the apple website now but we can talk about it um it seems like it's not the most straightforward car to review and also but how where do you what's the context for this thing because it's way more expensive than any other super suv um it's the first of its type from ferrari it's a difficult one to approach isn't it okay so I think that there, you know, there, there's there's a massive red herring in this, which is even to use the word SUV in the context. And, and to be fair to Ferrari, they never call it an SUV. It's not an SUV. It's a successor to the FF and the Lusso. That's what it is. Um, and it has, as cars tend to, it's got a bit bigger. It's got a bit taller. And in this particular case, it's sprouted another couple of doors. Okay? So it's a four-door successor to the Lusso and the FF. That's what it is. And uh, you just you just tie yourself a knot if you try to think of it as anything else. And 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 I think that we as motoring journalists are quite often guilty of trying to pigeonhole things and go, oh, well, that's that kind of car. Um, it is. I mean, <clears throat> if you look, try to look for other rivals, you know, something like a Panamera Turbo S Gran Turismo, uh, Sport Turismo. Sorry, um, it's kind of close, except it's half the price. Um, a Taycan Turbo S Cross Turismo, which is a bit, you know, off-roady, um, is possibly closer, but it's half the price. So there's nothing like it out there. 313,120 quid. Basic. And good luck to anyone who tries to buy one for that amount of money. I imagine your Ferrari dealer will laugh you straight out of the showroom. Um, you know, you, they're, they're going to want you to put some options on that. Um, <laughs> so... <clears throat> So it does sit kind of alone in the marketplace at the moment, but nevertheless, it is 
as I said, the, the, the successor to the to the Lesso V12 only. Um, and I actually, you know, I admire Ferrari's. I don't know how you pronounce this word, chutzpah. For you know, it would be so tempting, wouldn't it? Thinking, oh well, you know, this is you know, it's our first four door car. We're new to this market. Let's stick a toe in the water. Let's you know, price to excite. And they haven't done that. They've just gone <laughs> sod it. You know, we're going to make a Cullinan sound che- look, look cheap. We're just going to go. We're going to look where everybody else is, whether it's a saloon or a hatchback or a SUV or anything else, and we're going to go in like fifty grand above the very, very top of that. And and the result of that is no one's buying them. Ha ha ha! Everyone's buying them. The queues are. Well, it depends who you talk to. I spoke to one person at Ferrari who said, "No, the waiting list is same as it is for most of our cars, which is about eighteen months." Uh, and other people have said to me they've closed the book because it got to two years, um, and they don't want it to be any longer than that. So um, I don't know, but it's massively in demand. So fair play to Ferrari. You know they've gone into a new market. They've priced their car way beyond anything else. And and it and it has worked. Undoubtedly it has worked. Um and, and, and I think I can see why, because it's the first all purpose Ferrari. I'm never gonna call it an SUV because it simply isn't, but it is a car. The very fact that it's got rear doors will open it up to a constituency of people who would never have bought an FF or a Lusso. Because it just it's just too difficult to sell. Even though FFs and Lussos are you know, remarkably spacious in the back. You know, I, I've been in the back of both of them and been absolutely fine. And I'm six foot three. Um, so, but, but those rear doors do just, you know, it just means that you can do anything with this. You can collect the kids from school. That you can, you know, load it up with uh, with the family and go off skiing in it. And it, it just makes, it's just the most usable Ferrari there has ever been. Um, and so fair play to them for that. Is it the best Ferrari there's ever been? In my in my view, absolutely not. Um, you know, there are a few things about it which, and I suppose, you know, you could say to an extent it goes to the territory, but which really compromise its, for want of a less excruciating term, Ferrariness. Um, number one is the fact that it weighs 2,170 kilograms. It's quarter of a tonne more than a Lusso. Well, that's a lot. You know, it's a lot, and it's a it's such a wide car, it's such a physically large car, um, and yeah. So, you know, however clever they have been with this with the chassis, and they've been unbelievably clever because it's got the four wheel steering from the from the eight twelve um, competizione in it. Um, it's got this very very clever forty uh, eight valve multimatic system on the. Um, <clears throat> on the suspension, which basically means it doesn't need anti-roll bars because it has these truly independent actuators which act in the same way, um, which means that it rides extremely well. And also, what if you can get it up to speed on a decent road, um, it is very accurate um, and poised, driven fast point to point, and yet, it, as I say, it rides beautifully well. But it still feels like a big, heavy car. And to me, Ferraris are not big, heavy cars. Um, does it retain the right to call itself a Ferrari? Of course it does. Because Ferrari have been making, you know, four-seat, if not four-door cars since the dawn of Ferrari almost. Um, and it is the natural evolution in that. But it is, it's the least enjoyable Ferrari I have driven for a very long time. Uh, and, and, you know, that sounds damning. But actually, if you think about it, it would be amazing if it were anything else. 
because it weighs nearly 2.2 tons because it's got a different set of priorities um, so I don't even mean that as a criticism. I think it's almost an inevitability that a 2.2-ton Ferrari is going to be less exciting than, you know, a 1.8-ton Ferrari or a 1.5-ton Ferrari. So, you know, but I think nevertheless, it's worth pointing this stuff out. Uh, and I also need to talk about the engine. Um, and, and, and I've I've come, I wouldn't say I've come in for a bit of stick, but there's been a lot of sort of contrary views uh, express which is which is fine and actually very welcome and i think from people who may be in a position to buy these things um you know and that's not you know the, well, I'm, I'm delighted that people who buy these cars you know are interested in us and read what we say and take what we say seriously but that's not our cause sort of like our core constituency and as a motoring journalist you have to write for your readers um but they have said you know so the point i make was that the engine is an amazing engine but it was designed for the enzo 20 years ago so it's an old engine and you know it's the engine that they've put in well all sorts of ferraris but you know the, the lusso and the ff absolutely but also you know it's still in the 812 competizione it was in the sp3 daytona that i drove last year where it has 829 horsepower from a 6.5 liter v12 they've detuned it to 715 horsepower um all in the interest of generating low down torque which they have done but it's still not enough because when you put your foot down at 3,000 revs, expecting, because you do, because in your mind with that sort of cars, you know, you just expect massive torque and at 3,000 revs or 2,000 revs in any gear for it to just go. And the Pura Sangue doesn't. It just it hasn't got the torque. It's got less torque than a standard, not a 707, a standard DBX. It's got less torque, I think, in total, let alone low down. Um, and so you put your foot down and it just speeds up a bit. It doesn't go, bah! Yeah, which is what you expect. It will still do that, but you've got to, you know, you've got to tug a pad paddle a couple of times. And, you know, I'm not saying that even that there's necessarily every wrong with that, but, it, you know, it doesn't suit the nature of the car or, to me, the category that it is in. Um, and I just found myself thinking, if they got the 3-litre V6 out of the 296 GTB, twin-turbo hybrid engine, um, with half the cylinders less than half the capacity they'd instantly gain over 100 horsepower more over 100 pound feet of torque more at well, like half the revs and it would work in that car so much better but it wouldn't sound like that and when you do get it up i mean it'll rev to like eight and a half thousand revs it'll just rev and rev and rev and when you do get it up that it's just like heaven on earth it's a ferrari v12 in full song it's just one of the best things in the world um so i'm not criticizing really either the car or the engine just the combination of the two it's like it's like i may have said this before it's like putting you know ketchup on your cornflakes you know they're both fine but you wouldn't stick them together and that's the only point i'm trying to make with this car so um yeah so i mean i came away from it thinking interesting you know technically very impressive uh, emotionally left me pretty unmoved um but I just left thinking, however good it is, it's almost like the Yaris, I guess. It could be better than that. And I could, but the thing is, I can see how it could be better than that. And Ferrari has the means to make it better than that. And if you say to Ferrari, when are you going to stick a V6 in it? They just go, uh, this is a V12 car. Um, it's been engineered for the V12. Uh, if you want to order one now, uh, it's the V12. And that's going to be the situation for um, the foreseeable future. So are you going to put the V6 or the V8 into it? It's a V12 car. <laughs> um and so are you saying you're not going to put the v6 or the v8 engine into it um i think you'll find this is a 12 cylinder car <laughs> um 
And you have these completely circular conversations where they can't quite bring themselves to deny it. <laughs> Um, but they're certainly not going to confirm it. And you know, I understand that, and it's all part of the game, and it's fine. Um, I would frankly be absolutely amazed if they don't put certainly the V6 powertrain in it. Um, although, yeah, let's not forget um, that they have hybridized the V12. You know, LaFerrari has that engine in it with a hybrid on it. So maybe they'll do that, and that will be the super um, Pure sangue. I somehow doubt it, though, because that was that was like sort of ten years ago, and the world's moved on a bit since then. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there were various aspects of the HMI which annoyed me. Like it's got no navigation on it, so you have to rely on you know having your smartphone with you and it not being lost or stolen or out of data or or anything else, um, or you just forgot to take it with you. Um, you get in the car and you fire it up, and there's this big yellow rev counter right in front of you. Um, which is the same in all Ferraris, and quite rightly, they're placing that instrument front and centre as the most important thing you, you want to be looking at, unless you want to actually find out where you're going, which stage you get no rev counter at all. It just disappears when the CarPlay screen comes up, um, which annoyed me. Um, but it, no, it's a, it's a really, really, if I say competent or fluid, people think that's just damning with flame plates. It's really good at the job Ferrari wants it to do, which is why it's... You know, and the job that it wants to do, it's not a job of an SUV. It's a, it's, it, the job Ferrari wants it to do is be a car which they can sell for, I mean, the average transaction price is probably going to be something close to a four, um, to people who want the ultimate usable Ferrari and can afford to just go, oh, sod it, let's have the V12. It may not be as good as a V6, but who cares? It's a V12. And do you really want to be the bloke who owns the V6 Pura Sangre when it comes along, when your mates have got the V12? Um, I mean, you know, you could say, oh, it's faster. Yes, I know. But listen to the thing. It doesn't sound anything like it's good. And so I understand um, why Ferrari have done it the way they've done. They've obviously done it very well. Um, I, yeah, I just think it could be even better than it is. I will say, and I've not driven it, but um, I think Ferrari deserves credit for really pushing the boat out with the engineering of that car. And actually, I think Aston Martin deserves the same credit for um, the approach it took with the DBX because neither of them borrowed a platform from somewhere else, you know, no, a, you're a, absolutely right. an, an SUV style platform from somewhere else, reclothed it, stuck a Ferrari or Aston badge on the nose and charged mega no. money for it. They both went all in. Aston Martin mm-hmm. built a new factory to build the DBX in <laughs> um, yeah. and on a totally bespoke platform. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we might think, actually I don't, but some people might think it's a shame that blue blooded marks like Aston Martin and Ferrari are building such cars um, but at least they've done it properly in both cases. Yeah, and, and the point with that is, I, I, you know, I, I was it a mistake when the KN first came out, whenever it was twenty something years ago. I said, "This is terrible. This isn't a Porsche." Blur. Um, and you know, I think the point I failed to appreciate at the time is the reason the GT3 RS is the simply unbelievable device that it is today is because it's paid for by KN sales. Um, and so as far as I can say, you can have as many KNs and pure sangues as you like if you continue to get cars as good as you know, GT3 RS or a 296 GTB. It's absolutely fine by me. If it makes those cars even better from the vulgar profits they make, fine. Bring it on. No worries. Do you think Ferrari is now, as a publicly traded company, do you think it's on a relentless treadmill of having to post growth, greater profits, on and on and on? 
Yeah, I think it's the same for any. For, and and so, so what, but what's the ultimate conclusion for that? I mean, what comes next after Puro Sangue? Puro Sangue V6. <laughs> um, who knows? It's all about shareholder value, isn't it? That's what motivates them. You know, they're accountable in the way that they never were before they floated. And it's the same with Aston Martin. Um, you know, and, and you know, I mean, sort of purists like Luca de Montezemolo um, probably wouldn't have survived in that era because he would be focused on the kind of cars that he thinks Ferrari ought to be making. Ferrari will be focused on the kind of cars that Ferrari shareholders want them to make. And they may not be the same thing. Um, but that's what happens when, you know, you are publicly financed. Um, you know, you have to do what your shareholders want. So what will Ferrari shareholders be asking them to do? Um, you know, I think that they will, I, you know, Ferrari have also said, because we kept on saying to them, is, is this going to be, is this your KN? Are you going to suddenly become an SUV manufacturer, which makes a few small sports cars, yeah, a, sort of, a small level of sports cars on the side? And they're going to no, absolutely not. Um, Pura Sangue production will never be more than 20% total production. And if I wasn't quite so cynical, um, I would go, well, that's very interesting. But, 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 but. I think back to the Lusso, which they did do with two engines. They did that with the V8 and with the V12. And if you talk to Ferrari um, and you talk to them about the Lusso, they'll say, well, which Lusso are you talking about? Because we made two cars called Lusso. There are two models called Lusso. We've made a Lusso with a V8 and a Lusso with a V12. So when Ferrari say only 20% of production could be pure sangue, do they mean pure sangue V12? And then they'll do another 20% with a V6 in it. And maybe another 20% with a V8 in it. Um, you can't ask them that question because they don't even ex- they don't even admit the existence of a V6 or a V8 Pure Sangue. And I may be completely wrong. Maybe they'll never come along. Uh, and maybe if they do, then it will stay at just 20%. But I think it's a hard sell to your shareholders. If you've got a car, uh, and we know the thing with, okay, it's not an SUV, but with those sorts of cars is they are the golden geese because they, they square the circle. Because historically speaking, you can either make a small amount of money selling a huge amount of cars so you so you make your profits on uh, on your sales or you make a small number of cars and you make and, and you sell them for a huge amount of money and therefore you make your profit on your margins SUVs and that kind of car proved you can do both you can make huge margins and you can sell an awful lot of them and if that turns out to be the case with the pure sangue which certainly seems to be the case now looking at the demand on the waiting list for it um, Ferrari are going to have to turn around to their shareholders and go Sorry, guys. Yes, there's an enormous amount of money we could be making, but we've said we're not going to make more than 20% of our production Puro Sangue, so we're going to turn down that money. And the shareholders were going, well, hang on. Mm. You know, that's not acting in our best yeah, interest. Yeah, they'll say, well, why did you say that? Why did you say that? And then maybe they'll say, well, we'll just say the Puro Sangue. Do you remember Cleo? René did this with the Williams. The Cleo Williams. Yeah, so they made they, they made the Clear Williams, and they sold they sold that in like half a minute, and they thought, oh bloody hell, we we kind of cocked that up a bit. I'll tell you what, we'll I don't know what they did. So well, we'll give it electric windows, and we'll call it the Williams Two, <laughs> and then we'll sell. And there was there was a group out there called Just Williams. There was a there was a sort of class action which which cried foul about this because, you know, Renault suddenly discovered discovered they had this massive success on their hands, um, and wanted to sell more of them. Uh, and there, there was a Williams 2 and a Williams 3. Um, and people who bought the original car, genuinely, honestly thinking it was going to be, those were going to be the only clear Williamses of any kind ever produced, I think quite understandably went, uh, excuse me, uh, hold on, 
so i don't know i don't know um yeah so i got completely lost but yeah i mean i i i I think ferrari have been very very smart um in producing this car the other thing sorry so i'm not going to be banging on about the engines for that much longer but if you look at the natural lifespan of these things uh the ff came out in 2011 i think um and so it probably had a lifespan of 10 years or so well 10 years from now you can't sell a naturally aspirated v12 engine in this country you can't you know, the law won't allow you to do it now the eu is uh i think is 2035 um but you know are you in 2033 going to be buying a v12 pure sangue knowing that you know what's going to happen to the residuals there? so i think that ultimately their hand will you know i think they'll have to do another powertrain for it because that's the way the world is moving but for now you know it's not in their interest to talk about it because they can sell as many v12s as they as they can make and that's the big margin car, isn't it? That's going to be the range topper. That's going to be the one that, you know, is going to return the greater shareholder value. So, yeah, I completely understand why they're not talking about other derivatives too. Yeah, interesting one. Um, good. Okay, well, let's leave Pure Segway there because we just want to talk about the start of the new World Endurance Championship season. Yeah. Um, now, Ferrari, this is at Sebring um, in Florida. Sebring, 1,000 uh, miles? Um, 12 hours. 12 hours. 12, okay, 12 hours. I, do you know what? But it is 12 hours or 1,000 miles, isn't it? Is, no. Is it not whichever one so. comes first? No. No, because 1,000 miles is about a six-hour race. 1,000 um, th- miles of Sebring, says the what? WEC website. Oh, blimey. It always used to be 12 hours. Well, there we go. Um, whatever. So, th- But it gets underway this weekend. And the, the big point is that uh, Ferrari will be there. So Ferrari is making its return to the top class of endurance racing. Um, First time in 50 years. Is it 50 years? Yeah. Wow. 50 years. 1973. 312 PB. Bloody hell. God, yeah. so it's a big event, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I know hypercars have been running around for a little while now, but for me, this is the start of the hypercar era. Because for the first time this weekend, we've got Ferrari, Porsche, Toyota, Peugeot, and Cadillac, and Glickenhaus. So we've got loads of different hypercars. This is where it really kicks off, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And, yeah. and Ferrari coming back into sports car. And there have been things like the... Well, you know, Ferrari have been very successful in GT racing, um, but that's not been a works team. And they've been, you know, they have the 333 SP, um, which did well in IMSA and did race at Le Mans, but that wasn't a works team. So, but this is... A works Ferrari team coming back at the top level of sports car racing. And that we have not seen for half a century. And if you think about um, where Ferrari was then. Okay, so in 73, uh, they didn't have such a good season. But in 72, so their last but one season, there were 11 rounds to the championship. 312 PB won 10 of them and didn't enter the 11th. It won every race it did. Every single one. So, you know, that gives you an idea of what was lost when Ferrari walked away from sports car racing. And, you know, and they did it because, you know, it's, you know, even with Fiat money, it was almost impossible to fight on two fronts at that level because the, those sorts of cars, those sorts of sports cars were essentially closed body Formula One cars. I mean, if you go and look at comparative lap times at places where they both raced, um, at places like Spa, um, they were quicker. 
you know, the fastest lap in a Formula One car around Spa uh, in the early 1970s was slower than the fastest lap of the three. I mean, Jackie Yix in 1972 lapped the old Spa in a three-litre car over half a century ago at an average of 163 miles an hour. 163 average. And that's got a hairpin in it. He averaged 163 miles an hour in a three-litre car. Bloody hell. Over half a century ago. So, you know, so that's an idea of the level of development that they had reached. I mean, they were absolutely as fast as Formula One cars of their era on certain circuits, probably faster. Uh, and you couldn't do it. You couldn't just, you know, you couldn't have a Formula One team. You know, the Formula One team was suffering. In 1973, um, you know, for the Ferrari Formula One team was completely on its ass. They hadn't won a championship since 64. Um, and so they decided to stop sports car racing. And surprise, surprise, 1974, they, you know, they had a bit of a comeback and they won the championship in 1975, should have won it in 76 and won it again in 77. So, you know, these things are not coincidences. These days, the reason I think Ferrari has come back and can do it again is the new rules. The rules are just so much more um, designed to allow teams to race for a sensible amount of money. Well, and also the uh, F1 cost cap, probably. And, and the F1 cost cap, yeah. So suddenly, um, and also, and I think this is a really, really important thing, um, Ferrari would have had all these staff, which the F1 cost cap, um, and I think there's a staff cap as well, isn't it, that meant that they can't employ in Formula 1 anymore. And if they're not very careful, they'll just bugger off and race for the rivals. So they don't want to lose their staff, so they need something. And I think this actually explains an awful lot of what's been going on um, to keep their, their top people who can't be in Formula 1 anymore um, you know, still on the payroll and particularly still not working for the opposition. So you do an LMH project and lo and behold, you, know, you can say to them, look, you, you can still work at the top level in a different branch of sports car racing and you don't have to go off and, you know, and work for the opposition. Mm. Yeah, it's so clever. That's Actually, the, the timing, I'm, I'm sure it's not fortuitous, I'm sure it's not a coincidence, but it, yeah. it works out perfectly, doesn't it? Particularly, it does. well, for, probably for Ferrari more than anyone else because they will be fighting on both fronts. Um, oh, God, so I, I actually can't wait to see um, how Sebring goes down. Uh, do you know what? I don't really know how it's looking. We've had the prologue the weekend just gone. Um, I don't know who's looking quick. I don't know if anyone's slow. I don't well, know... Quite I think Toyota poised. looking. I think Toyota looking quick. I think they were first and second. And they've been running that car for a while, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And then I think it was Cadillac third, and then I think the Porsches fourth. I think Ferrari. Had, I don't think Ferrari had a great time. They were like a second and a bit off the pace. Um, and one car. So I think they had two cars there, and one car with James Collado driving it went off the circuit for a, no reason that Ferrari is given, um, but it didn't run again. Um, so I think they ended up P6, a second and a bit off the pace. So that would suggest that they are uh, not where they would want to be at the moment. I did speak to somebody at Ferrari on the Pura Sangue launch um, who told me that they didn't expect to be fighting for the win at Le Mans. But, you know, who knows whether that's pre-season sandbagging or not. Who knows? You know, and you know, and, and and I don't think it's like Formula One testing, isn't it? You can't read anything into these things, really. Um, it'll all be clear. Well, I think it'll be partially clear by C. You said something very interesting to me just before we started recording this, which is that the balance of performance has now been set until after Le Mans. Now. I think they can. You said there's a platform adjustment. So if it turns out that the LMH cars are massively faster than the LMDH cars because there are two categories at the top level, then they reserve the right to adjust that. 
So all, whichever one's being disadvantaged, all cards in that category will be made, will be given the same um, D restriction. But between the cards themselves and individual categories, you're saying that it's set now. Set now. So, you know, if in a LMDH or the LMH class, a car, uh, it, you know, the, the, its performance should be in that and now be set. And so Sebring will, should give us an idea of what, will happen at Le Mans. Mm. Yeah, notwithstanding circuit characteristics, suiting particular Indeed, cars or not. Yeah, and also, you know, there will, I presume there is some, there, you know, there'll, be, there'll be development and that, uh, all sorts of stuff, but I think it will give us an indication. I mean, I can't imagine how much the ACO, the Automobile Club de l'Ouest, which runs Le Mans, would want Ferrari to win that race. Because it's Ferrari, because it's been 50 years since Ferrari has raced at the top level at Le Mans, and because this is the 100th anniversary of the law. So it's the centenary year. I mean, it would be such a wonderful fairy tale finish for them. Um, and I don't really think I can say anything more on that subject. Uh, so, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, so, so on, on balance of performance, I'll just insert a disclaimer. That's just something I read on daily sports car this morning now daily sports car is normally immaculate and very trustworthy um yeah so i'm I'm assuming it's correct forgive me if it's not quite right um but it does suggest that we're not going to get those balance of performance shenanigans that we've seen in the past i really hope not i really i mean i mean i go back to ford coming back in the gt category at in 2016 where suddenly at lamore they found a pace that had not been even remotely suggested in the season up until that moment. Um, and, you know, and I'm not casting aspersions here. I don't know what happened. But certainly some people were saying that Ford just sandbagged um, through the early part of the season to get themselves um, a great balance of performance. Others were saying, and I absolutely don't know if this is true, that the ACO were really keen for... Um, for Ford to win the GT category in that in in that race because it was coming, what was it, fifty years after Le Mans '66, you know Ford's first win at Le Mans. Uh, I don't know, but you know, let's hope that nothing like that happens because if teams play games or if organisers play games because of the importance of Le Mans, and let's be clear about this: there is not a team in World Endurance Championship which would not throw every other race of the season. To win Le Mans. Well, yeah, the entire or, championship they'll throw. The entire championship. They would rather... If you said to them, okay, you can't even enter the championship. You can't go to any of the other places, you, you know. But um, you can win Le Mans. Or vice versa. You can win every single round, but you're going to DNF at Le Mans. Um, they would always choose to win Le Mans. That's how important it is. So that's why there, are, there is so much temptation to mess about in the races prior. But if you do that, then the people who go to those races or watch them, or they're, they're watching a pantomime. They're not watching real racing. They're watching teams strategize um, for a race that isn't even happening yet. So I just, I just really, really hope that none of that happens and that the FAI are on top of that and that people get to watch proper motor racing because, you know, anything else is unacceptable. Yeah, quite right. Well, let's see how it plays out. Sebring this weekend. Looking forward to that. Um, Okay, so we've got a listener question coming up, and actually it's still on uh, the Ferrari Puro Sangue theme. Um, But before that, uh, let me remind you all, please, to rate and review the podcast. Um, And actually, this week, I want you to focus on the subscribe button or the follow button. 
Um, most of you will be using either the Apple Podcast app or Spotify. I know other people use other platforms. But most of you will be on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There will be a follow or subscribe button. Just click that. It really, really helps us. Um, also, go and check out the-intercooler.com. We've been talking about some of the stories that have been up there recently uh, on this podcast. There's some great stuff up there. So go and check it out and start your one-month free trial. So the listener question comes from Peter Chapman, who says... Would you have a Puro Sangue or a GTC4 Lusso and what other fun car with the money left over? And he makes a good point. Now, let's just be clear. The typical Puro Sangue customer isn't having to make these sorts of decisions, but we can sort of fantasize a little bit. So, well, let's call it 350000 The average Puro Sangue is probably going to cost more than that, but call it three fifty. Yeah. Could you have a... A couple of year old GTC4 Lusso and a 296 GTB, maybe not quite, but it's not far off. I'd have an entire. I was, um, yeah, as you say, you know, Puro Sangre customers don't have to make these decisions because they've probably got six or seven cars anyway. Um, but for us, as you say, just messing about, I was just while you were um, reading that out, I just looked up the price of FFs. You can buy an FF. Yes, yeah, an early FF, which cost like 230,000 quid when it was new 10 years ago. 90 grand car. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a 90 grand car. Wow. I love an FF. I think an FF is really cool. Um, You know, V12, everything else. So, no, me, God, I, 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 okay. So let's call it, well, I don't know what you pay for a a V12 Lusso, but call it, call it, I don't know, 150, something like that. Um, So, I've got two, so I can have a Lusso and £200,000 to spend on other things. Okay, so, you see, I wouldn't have the Lusso because I'll have a Range Rover. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, you go a totally (laughs) different route. I'll just go completely different. But let's say you have to have the Lusso. Um, Oh, God, I mean, I wouldn't think about it, you know, because you you, you could have a GT3 RS, you could have, you know, you could have your K-Trim, you could have your, you could just have an entire stable of cars for the price of one Pure Sangue. Wouldn't even think about it. It just doesn't mean that much to me to have the, you know, the latest, newest, cleverest, smartest thing. And if I was really that rich, uh, I'd have a Range Rover. I mean, I wouldn't buy a Puro Sangue because I'd just have a Range Rover and a 296 GTB. Um, Perfect. And you'd be very, a very happy Well, it happy is, boy. isn't it? I mean, however good the Puro Sangue is, I, it'd be very interesting to hear from somebody. If anybody's listening to this, I would just be really interested to hear. And I know that you can't really compare one car to two other cars but to me a range rover and a 296 gtb and a 296 gtb the more i think about it the more i think it's going to be one of the great great ferraris i think it's just astonishing and why wouldn't you have that in a range rover Mm. yeah that's what i'd do that's what i'd do certainly uh peter thanks for your question keep your questions coming across they're good fun we'll do it again next week 